Hello and welcome to the Motormouth Podcast with Harry Benjamin and Tim Sylvie. This is the place where we meet some of the biggest names in and around motorsport, chat about their lives and everything in between. We've partnered with the Brain Tumor Charity, helping to raise awareness and help find a cure. Thanks to our partnership, we've been able to create a short series of special podcasts uncovering those within the motorsport community who've been affected by these devastating diagnoses. You can hear those stories, including the Williams F1 team's planning director, Richard Jones, right now on your chosen podcast player. Also, bookings are still available for the Motormouth Charity Karting event with places on August the 10th still on general sale. Enter your team of four to an endurance race and compete with and against a host of motorsport celebs or pro drivers who will be drawn at random to be on your team. Gates open at 12.30 and close at 6pm. For all the information and to see who you could be up against, head to motormouthkartrace.com. We'll see you there and together we can help every single person affected by a brain tumour. It's season eight and we're really excited to be once again teaming up with F1 Experiences, the official experience, hospitality and travel program of Formula One. F1 Experiences is the closest you can get to the pinnacle of motorsport. And let's face it, any chance to get close to Formula One this year, we are all over it. And the brilliant news is you can now return trackside thanks to F1 Experiences. Enjoy the very best race tickets and track hospitality, first class hotels, and unprecedented access you simply cannot get anywhere else. For more information on how you can book your F1 experience, visit f1experiences.com where you can also save 5% on your very own F1 experiences package by using the code MOTORMOUTH when checking out online. So, what are you waiting for? Experience the 2021 F1 season firsthand with exclusive access courtesy of F1 Experiences. Get booking today at f1experiences.com. Hello everyone, Tim Sylvie here. Now today's guest was born in Heidelberg in Germany before a jet-setting life began. Racing and living all over the world, a stint in Monaco, then moving to Brazil and more accurately, the capital Brasilia. And did you know, Harry Benjamin, that the city of Brasilia took just 41 months to build from 1956 to 1960 to replace Rio as the country's capital city, where it had been previously for the last 197 years. And furthermore, Brazil is the fifth largest country in the world by population, with over 210 million people over a geographical area of 3,287,597 square miles. It borders every South American nation, barring Ecuador and Chile, and makes up 47% of the continent. Did you know that? I didn't, and I did A-level geography. So, Not you know, you well. learn something new every day, as we do on this podcast. It's been a while since we've recorded one as well, so I've been it missing has. your random facts at the start of each show. Well, I'm glad to uh, enlighten you. And I have to say, and, and this is becoming a, um, a regular thing now, and I can say it now, I know I can say it, because by the time this is released, it would have already happened. You recently, fairly recently, made your commentary TV debut with Porsche, um, and uh, and various others, various GTs and all sorts of different bits and pieces. But mm-hmm. it's getting even more exciting because you're making your full F3 commentary debut suit. Well, this weekend, which at the time of recording will be Austria, um, replacing the um, the brilliant Alex Jacks. So that must be scary. Uh, yeah, so I haven't done it yet, but by the time this goes out, um, we'll find out if I've uh, mucked it up or not. So <laughs> we'll see how it goes. But yeah, I'll do the Formula 3, so that'll be really fun uh, for this, the second part of the doubleheader in Austria. Um, so yeah, really looking forward to that. And uh, it's just cool to, to be 
showering at fast cars. Who doesn't love to do that? Uh, no, well, best of luck to you. Um, well, listen, shall we introduce today's guest? I think so. He's achieved a bit more than I have. So today we are joined by Nelson Piquet Jr., the man who won the first ever FIA Formula E Championship, beating former podcast guest Sebastian Boemi by a single point. He's a man with impressive racing heritage and the son of three-time Formula One world champion Nelson Piquet. He worked his way up from karting, F3, GP2, A1GP, one of my favourites, Formula One, NASCAR and a sprinkling of Rallycross and, of course, Formula E. We're here to dive into his life, career and opinions. Nelson Piquet Jr., a big welcome to the Motorman Podcast. Good afternoon or good morning. For me, it's good morning. So (laughs) uh, great to be here and, uh, yeah, ready to bring uh, bring up some memories and uh, some interesting stories. Thanks for joining us, Nelson. We really do appreciate it. You say it's morning there. Whereabouts are you joining us from? I'm in Sao Paulo at the moment. Very nice. And so, well, let's get straight back straight back into it then. Let's uh, open up memory lane, shall we, and go back to where it all began, if I may. Um, you were born in Germany to a Dutch mother and, uh, of course, former F1 world champion Nelson. So what was life like sort of initially growing up in Germany, Monaco, and then Brazil? So many different influences, I imagine, lots of different cultures. Were you aware as well of the, the, you know, the, the high-profileness of, of your father at that time? Talk us through the early stages before sort of getting into cars. Well, yeah, not, not, a, typical, um, not a typical, let's say, journey in the beginning for me. Um, going from one country to another, I mean, it wasn't that much. I mean, from... Till I was eight, grew up in South France, Monaco, sort of Monaco, South of France, because uh, it wasn't it wasn't inside Monaco, but it was really close to Monaco. Um, and then when I was eight, I went to Brazil, and when I was sixteen or so, seventeen, I went to, to England. So uh, you know, I didn't have. Uh, I think on one side, uh, which is good, a lot of the drivers that come from far away from or. Either it's Australia or Japan or Brazil or come all the way to England to live in England. It's 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 sometimes it can be a pretty big um, uh, yeah it's a big not a shock I would say but you know you're far from your family far from your friends and you know when you're when you're coming up in life and racing you know doing all these steps from British F3 then to Formula Two you know when you add you know, obviously it's already difficult for all of us young drivers to go through these steps but you know if you have family around or friends sometimes you don't feel so much away from your comfort zone you know when a brazilian is coming to england or japanese drivers coming all the way from japan to stay to live in england you add another uh another level of 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 difficulty or not, i don't know what's the right word at the moment but um another you know you add another level of uh of uh, obstacle which is, you know, far away from your friends, different culture, different foods, a different language, um, all these, all these things, which, which make it harder. You know, I think for the non-European uh, drivers, especially, I would say, you know, the Japanese drivers and maybe Brazilians uh, or Argentinians, stuff like that. That's, I think they kind of suffer. I would say not. I wouldn't say suffer, but they have an extra struggle when they come to a country like England, which for many years, that was the path that we needed to do yeah. to arrive in F1. Uh, it, it was harder for us, you know. It's different when you get a, a French driver that he just gets a plane or gets a car and he crosses the border, he's in England or even Italy, in two hours he's there. 
you know, any, you know, anybody in Europe, but then you get a Japanese culture or a Latin Brazilian, Australian, oh, sorry, uh, Argentinian, Bolivian, anywhere here in South America, and you go all the way to Europe, you know, okay, it's not an end of the world flying for 10 hours, but still you are facing with different languages, different, um, different cultures, different food, you know, and that ends up adding up to already the difficult task that you have. Yeah. So um, going back to the reason why I'm saying this to, to your original question, I think I was in a way I was lucky to have, you know, born in Germany, Dutch mother, living in France. And I went to Brazil and then moving back to England because that step was hard for me, obviously. But probably if I would have been born in Brazil, raised my whole life in Brazil and then leave Brazil to go to England, probably that would have been, you know, a step harder for me. So um, I think in a way I didn't create as many roots as a lot of people do with their own country. So if tomorrow, let's say I would have to be living in the States or back in Europe or Japan, Australia, wherever, um, I wouldn't feel as homesick, let's say, as, as, as a person that would have been born somewhere and would have been raised. And then after 16, 17, 18 years going to have to, having to leave to a different continent and, uh, you know, start your life there. Yeah, yeah. It's it's uh it's interesting. We were talking to Alex Brundle um a few weeks ago and um and and about his life growing up and his dad having, you know, sort of a conveyor belt of uh, incredible names wandering through his house as a as a youngster. What was it like? Did did you realize the 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 stature of your father when you were growing up? And was it fairly normal to you to be in a paddock or surrounded by other well-known racing drivers of the time? Well, again, I mean, it's it's a bit difficult, a bit different from from the example in Europe because, uh, let's say, if my dad was would be we would be living in Europe, or if we were from a European, let's say, country, I probably would have would have um, how can I say it? would have been seeing much more of this. I would have been seeing much more friends of my father. I would have been um, maybe surrounded by this 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 world a little bit more like you said of, of of the brundle family in our case because my father went back to brazil and i was in brazil well who who the hell is going to go all the way to brazil to visit us you know from let's say from the currents at that time f1 paddock so maybe the f1 grand prix we would go there and you know you would see a bunch of people but that was the only moment really that we we saw stuff you know so again it's it's something that's um we're so far away from this reality of f1 when in brazil that for me when i went to england and when i had my first f1 test at silverstone and all these kind of things you know that was wow you know i mean i think maybe for someone that is i don't know let's get a lewis for example you know he grew up in england and then obviously going to f1 races as a kid even as a spectator or as a guest from mclaren after he became a mclaren driver so maybe for 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 this example for him as for example it's much more was much more of less of a shock you know for me you know just by going inside Silverstone inside that that huge huge track which had so much history was already you know it had a, gave us already butterflies in the stomach plus doing a race there and then having big events like F1 races that all of those things was always such a wow you know it would you know. Uh, I feel that maybe for 
you guys that live there every day that that are there day in day out you know it's just one more day yeah. obviously not exactly that but still the impressions that you guys probably would feel by going inside silverstone it wasn't the same feeling from us coming all the way from brazil yeah. and going to silverstone for the first time it's fascinating, isn't it, actually, what, what you said? Because you don't see all that uh, that hard work. You, I mean, we know about the hard work and struggle that it takes already to be a racing driver, but then just adding in, you know, if you're not in Europe, it just makes everything 10 times harder, doesn't it, if you're coming across here? But um, but moving into cars and entering this, this motorsport world, I'm curious to know, was there any other option for you? Or was it always you were going to be a racing driver? That was just never questioned. Well, my father, my father was all... You know, the one thing that he's, well, harsh on, I would say, is that, I mean, he's always left, I mean, we're, we're a family of seven kids. We're two girls and five boys. Wow. And I'm the only one that still races. Um, and my father was always very clear in, 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 in that regards. I'll always help you to do whatever you want to do as long as you love what you're doing. And, um, um, you know, I had... Out of the five boys, uh, four of them tried it, and you know, most recently Pedro, and um, you know, they end up for different reasons. They they didn't continue, and my father was always in that way was very strict. You know, or you love what you do. It doesn't matter how good you are, how bad you are, whatever it is. I'll always help you to you know to follow your dreams to to do some to do something with with the sports. Um, but you need to love what you do. And, and I had something sickening about racing, you know, it was, uh, that was the only thing I thought about and wanted to do. And there wasn't, obviously there, there wasn't a, a doubt about it because even when I lived in South of France and my parents, my parents were divorced since, since I was born practically, um, I obviously must've been a, a, a influence of my mother, but I was always, let's say, playing with race cars, whether it was in the in a dining table or something like that. I mean, playing with them. And I was not the kind of kid which I was playing with that because I was watching Netflix, F1 drivers, that kind of stuff. Obviously, we didn't have any of that, you know? I mean, what I would have were those VHS cassettes, which I have over here in the closet, um, that I would watch, like, the crazy crashes of, you know, of... of 1980s you know so you would see the british touring cars and you would see a mixture of f1 and all kinds of different stuff and but it wasn't like i i i started watching f1 like paying attention at the race from the beginning to the start i'm gonna say probably after i was an f3 because before that was boring it was the michael the michael area era where he was winning everything and races were long and boring compared to a go-kart race and then they were compared to a F3 race later on, you know? Um, so I always run away from these questions. I, I don't remember what the question was anymore now, but... Uh, um, we'll, we'll take that. We'll take that. Now, but let, let's... Well, what was the original question? Let me just finish. It was It was basically, you know, was there any other option? Aside oh, gotcha. Sorry, sorry, sorry. So, so yeah. So growing up in, in, in Europe, not, not going to any racetracks, I was always playing with these cars. And the moment I got in Brazil, I didn't even speak Portuguese. So my, my languages were French and English at the time. And um, I, um, my father, obviously, first thing, he had recently just, just had the Indy 500 accident. So he was recently started his company, getting off the crutches that he, he still had at the time. And he said, uh, he brought me to a go-kart track. I said, let's, 
Nelson, you want to give it a try? I had no idea what I was doing. He was still speaking English with me while, uh, you know, he had to translate things from me to the mechanic. Well, there was not much I was going to say, but I started driving and uh, I don't remember much, to be honest, from those days. I don't know why, but I have a terrible memory for, for this. But um, my father found a mechanic uh, that, that he ended up trusting because my father was working so hard in those days, uh, starting up his company that he still has till, till today. He had no time. I mean, he was there the first time with me. And then he said, OK, he got, found a mechanic that he trusted, that he could pick me up from school or could organize my go-kart. And from that day on onwards, I was every day from Monday to Friday after school going there like if it was football practice. You know, I mean, I was always driving. And the first couple of months when I didn't speak Portuguese yet, was only, you know, when you're a kid, you, you pick up it, you pick up the language quickly. But um, I was a stubborn kid and I didn't speak Portuguese. So at the end of practice, when it was getting dark, the only way to stop me was to putting fuel in the go-kart the right amount of fuel for it to finish when it was going to get dark. So they would say, okay, we have another half an hour. Let's fill up the tank and let him go because he'll drive and he won't stop. They will try to stop me in the track when it was getting dark. And I was stubborn and was, I don't know what was wrong with me, but I wouldn't stop. So I would just, I, I would only stop when the, when would run out of fuel. And, um, and then I would cry, make it do a tantrum or whatever, the driver would take me back home. And then it was like that until I started learning the language and understood that at one point I couldn't drive anymore. You know, I had to go back home. So, and, and it's been like that, you know, my, I think my father saw that and didn't see that. in probably most of the kids, most of the, our my brothers that, you know, it wasn't that level of craziness about wanting to race. And uh, that's, you know, that's why he's always, supported me uh through my career i would say that's that's really nice a really nice story to hear and it's great to hear of a racing driver with such passion because let's be honest not all racing drivers not all people who are racing have that deep-rooted passion i'm not going to name any names but there are drivers who may come from a privileged background or like you have a father in the sport who just seem to do it for a hobby and and have all the money in the world they needed to do it, but don't have that drive that can really push them on to success. Yeah, I mean, just just completing a little bit what you're talking about. I mean, what 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 drives me crazy sometimes, and I you see it and you see it on TV all the time, is these 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 drivers that made it sometimes made it for F1, made it to F1 because of sponsors or because of different various reasons, and if for whatever reason it didn't work out or didn't manage, didn't get the sponsors they needed to continue in F1 or this and that, which they were spending, I don't know, 10, 20, 30 million pounds. And then the next year, they don't do anything. Yeah. They didn't do an IndyCar, they didn't do a DTM, they don't do whatever it is. You, just because your credentials you had in F1 for two, three, four, five, whatever, how many seasons you did, even if it was one, I mean, your chances of getting something somewhere else are much better, you know, especially when you're freshly out of F1. You can do so. You can do other stuff, and the amount of drivers that I see, oh, didn't work out on F one. I don't want to do it anymore. It just drives blinds my. It blows my mind away because I was like, guys, I mean, are you on F one for the fame, for just because to be in the paddock, or do you you want to race? I mean, uh, real drivers need to want to race. Yeah, F one is the top of of where everybody dreams to be, Um, but. 
do you love racing or you love being an F1 driver? You know, yeah. there's, there's two. And I see that more frequently than I would like to because it's it's just, it's a bit sad because, you know, I mean, come on. Um, to be an F1 driver, you need to have that passion. You need to have that dedication and you need to have, that's neat. It needs to be what you want to do more than anything else in the world to, yeah. to achieve there. It's so competitive and so difficult to get there. You know, and then you see these drivers that have maybe maybe they got some easier opportunities. They have found a sponsor, whatever it is, and then all of a sudden, if they don't have the sponsor anymore, they cannot be an F one. Yeah, they're not doing anything else yeah, anymore. Yeah. You know, and that's that's just crazy. It is, and it's it's funny. There's, you know, one one guy who I I was involved with um, a lot for for his F one career, Max Chilton, who who I I have criticised for certain things that he's done, but equally. To his credit, what he did do was after Formula One, when he left the sport under difficult circumstances, he didn't um, hang up his his boots. He he even took a, a massive step back and went to Indy Lights before getting eventually to IndyCar. And OK, Max has got a lot of money behind him. Everyone knows that. But equally, at least he he had the... Um, the the humbleness to be able to go. Okay, well, I've left F one. I'm going to do Indy Lights, and I don't really care what people think. But I'm racing. You know, credit credit to him for that. I don't know if you know that, but uh, I actually re- replaced him in Toronto Indy Lights race uh, in 2000, uh-huh. 2016, I think it was. Yeah. I think I'm pretty sure he had Le Mans. Or he had some oh, kind of race. No, wasn't it? Wasn't it? It um, would be that Nissan project. It was the it? Nissan LMP1 the project. Nissan, maybe the Nissan project. And he missed yeah. the race. He missed the, the Toronto Indy Lights race. And Trevor called me. But Nelson, would you and would you fancy doing Indy Lights? I was like, yes. Where? When? Just tell me where to be. And um, so I got to Toronto. I'd never been to Toronto. I'd never been in Indy, in Indy Lights race. And uh, I got the pole. Um, <laughs> first time there. I started on pole. I was winning the race, and if you guys want to Google it, put it on, I don't know if you guys put some images here or not, but yeah, then, yeah. Um, I don't know, 10 laps into the race or something, this, I don't know, Jack something, one of these drivers, I was, I was, I closed the door, and he just, I don't know what the hell was going through his head, but he just hit, hit the back of my car and flipped upside down, nearly hit the one of the bridges of the, of the racetrack. And that was the end of my race. And um, it was a shame, but I was going to, I got on the pole. I was going to win my first and only Indy Lights race on, in Max's car. I remember this because um, Max, we were sort of expecting Max to jump into Indy Lights and just smash it, just win. And he didn't. Um, so it, it was a little bit awkward. But um, And then Nelson came into Max's car and stuck it on pole straight away. It's a bit like, oh, bloody hell. Like, Max has been sort of getting the odd the odd pole here and there, but not winning all the races. And you know, I'm not sure. I'm not sure when he actually won a race um, in Indy Lights. But it was we were kind of like, oh great, Nelson's come in, sat in Max's car, and gone and stuck it on pole straight away. <laughs> it makes us all look a bit stupid. Um, but it's it's a good series, and I I love the whole Indy Lights into Indy Car thing. I think they're doing brilliant stuff over there, and I'm a massive Indy Indy Car fan. Um, and we'll talk about your US um, racing a little bit later. But I want to pick up on um, British F3 where you came across to um where you were immediately on it um and um i think um i'm right in saying you you won it in 2004 ahead of adam carroll who yeah. who incidentally um was it harry was it adam that said nelson was i think it was either timo glock or adam carroll because we quiz drivers on who the best person is that they've raced against and your name cropped up 
Um, I can't remember whether it was Tino. Yeah, Adam Carroll was, was very Adam. complimentary, but also bitter. But complimentary. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but what, but that, that period earned you that test with Williams. What was that like? How did that opportunity come about? And what was it like the first time you sat inside a full-blown Formula One car? Jeez, um, I mean, at the time, the F3 cars, they were more in the... Uh, the same, that same kind of culture of my dad's, you know, hard, hard tires, um, tight tracks, just a very different kind of driving with driving skills from F1. You know, I think nowadays, as much as the F3 is, some people criticize it a lot compared to the old F3 cars, it's heavier, it's this and that, but it, it is more similar to what you're going to face in F2 and an F1, you know? Um, softer tires, super high degradation, you know. Um, so, you know, in a way, I I understand that you know it's making the driver's life a bit easier by um, having a similar, more similar car to what they're going to face later on. And at those days, hard tires, the tracks in England, which you know you guys know how it is, um, it was so different from F1. I mean, I'm, I'm telling you, I, I honestly, I. Uh, I trained as much as I could before the F1 test, and it was just so much quicker, so much, so different that um, I, I honestly, it was, it was for me, it was I, 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 it was just, it just it was, it was just a bit too quick at the beginning. You know, the jump was too, too big from going from I don't know, two hundred something horsepower, two hundred twenty horsepower to eight hundred V10 engine. You know, it, it was just too crazy. And it was so, um, um, for me, it was, you know, I couldn't keep calm. I was just every time I accelerate, I mean, it was just holding my head to try to not fall off. And, uh, I couldn't, it wasn't natural enough for me to be able to concentrate purely on the driving and, uh, not having to deal with all this speed and this G force. Did you, after that testing, did you suddenly start to feel though, although you felt like it was still quite a big jump at the time, what followed was then in 2005, obviously a, mu- a move up to GP2 and you won in Spa as well, then got another test for BAR Honda in Formula One. And then the following year, you came second to Lewis Hamilton. Were you feeling like you were in a really good kind of momentum at that stage? You've had some F1 tests behind you. You know, Lewis Hamilton was obviously just ahead at the time. People bigging him up for good things. And of course, I suppose you might have seen that at the same time, but you were up there with him as well. Were you thinking, right, okay, I'm in a really good position here. I'm ready for F1. Um, well, you never know when you're ready for F1 because you know you don't know what to expect. But in terms of speed and confidence with the car, definitely after my F3 days, um, me and my teammate from GP2 or F2, uh, Shani Negrel, we bought a, a old uh, world Nissan car uh, which the time Super Nissan, which you guys probably know about. I don't know how how long you guys know motorsports, but uh, it was a great championship they had uh, back in the early 2000s. We bought all, one of those old cars because it had a lot of power, big tires, a lot of downforce, and we said let's 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 share the car and let's go uh, let's go testing, and that helped me a lot because uh, when I started in GP2, you know we. I, I got used to the car easy, quicker because, you know, I, I, by then I had done maybe at least five days of testing on, on this world Nissan and the super Nissan car and different tracks. Like we went to Nürburgring, remember 
Budapest, uh, went to a couple of tracks, uh, I think in Spain somewhere. Um, so it gave us, it gave me some baggage when the GP2 thing started that, you know, I knew how to deal with all that power. And, um, um, and so I did the first GP2 season, which was an okay season, nothing special. I had a win, a couple of podiums. Uh, at, you know, I had, we had PK sports at the time as well. You cannot forget that factor, which was a, a local team for us. You know, I had a Brazilian engineer, some Brazilian mechanics mixed with some British mechanics. Um, but we were against ART, we were against Arden, we were against iSports, all these brilliant minds in England, in Europe that's, you know, that have been dominating the Formula 3000, then, you know, those, those eras of big cars, which it wasn't easy to beat. You know, we had just beaten a lot of famous teams in England, in, in British F3, like Fortec, Trevor Carlin, uh, P1 Motorsport that was with uh, Adam Carroll, um, a bunch of, you know, a lot of good teams. Um, and, uh, and now we were facing formula two and right, right before the, when the first season of GP two started, when the first season of GP two ended, I remember that was when a one GP started. And by then I had, you know, a season of GP two, a couple of tests of, um, of world Nissan, the car we bought, uh, I had had probably the Williams test. And I don't know if I had the BAR test already done by then. But uh, when I jumped in the A1 GP car, you know, it was just so easy for me. You know, I mean, I I, I knew so much what I was doing was was with that kind of power, that kind of car. And they they were having a tryout with a couple of Brazilian drivers. I remember it was Daniel Durani, Carpatozo, a couple of drivers that were still maybe a step behind me um, <clears throat> doing the F3 things. Maybe João Paulo de Oliveira, the Brazilian guy that races in Japan. I think he had probably had done some uh, uh the nippon series over there but they were all testing and i was the last one to jump in the car and when i jumped in the car i was all of a sudden i think seven tenths to a second quicker than everybody else and it was a no-brainer for them they they picked me and but i was at that point between the end of 2005 beginning of 2006 with which which was my second gp2 year i was really well you know when the gp when this my when 2006 when the gp2 season started in valencia um and then when lewis was there was art which was the best team you know we won the first race by a long way second race we did very well we were leading the championship in the beginning was a good margin it was only when um halfway through the 2006 season which i got really sick and uh, a lot of people don't know this, but um, I, I I developed that hay fever allergies, which probably half of your country has it. <laughs> but it's something that I've never had. You know, I wow. I lived I went to England in two thousand four, uh, two thousand three, three, four, five, never had nothing. Fine. All of a sudden, I developed this hay fever allergy, which I had no idea what it was. I don't know if it was a flu. I don't know if it was. COVID at the time, whatever it was, uh, because I was literally, I mean, my eyes were swollen. I couldn't stop sneezing and I couldn't sleep well. And this lasted for, that was in the, that was in summer in, in the, the June, July or period where, which was Le Mans, which I did Le Mans as well in 2006, my first Le Mans appearance. And it took me it took me a month to, to figure out that I had these allergies, but I didn't know how I didn't know how to deal with this. And it, you know, at the beginning, I thought it was just 
sneezing, but I'm not, I'm not feeling sick. So I don't know what it is. And then my eyes would start itching. And then the terrible mistake, you put your hands in your eyes and you're doing this and then it became all worse. And, oh, it was just a nightmare. And after obviously I, I found out that I had this, this allergy, um, that I had developed it. Okay. Well, what's the medicine to take? Well, there's not, there is medicine, but most of them you cannot take it because of the doping tests in, in F1 or in GP2 plus, and I don't know if this is with you guys, if you face this, but the, um, it's not like you get a hundred percent relief when you take these Zyrtax and these kind of things. It's, it helps you a little bit, but the big secret that I've learned through the last 20 years dealing with this freaking allergy is basically staying in, in indoors and in air conditioning, not putting your hands in your eyes, washing your hands all the time, uh, trying to use sunglasses when you're outside. And that's the best way to, to, to say, and anyway, sorry, I'm going into these details of information, but no, it's brilliant. So I, for, for about, for about six to eight weeks, I suffered so much. And that's what the Silverstone race wow. was during Le Mans. And it was another F2 uh, GP2 race somewhere else, which I should have done much better than I did, but because I was with my mind so sick and not knowing, not, not being able to deal with this, it, it, it hurt me a lot. I, I lost a lot of performance in those, in that period until I finally figured out what I had. A quick interruption to the show to remind you to check out our sponsor, F1 Experiences. F1 Experiences offer a wide range of packages that come direct from Formula One, giving you a unique experience of the pinnacle of motorsport. Official ticket packages come with the very best race tickets, first-class hotels and transfers, and unprecedented access, including track tours, pit lane walks, VIP hospitality, and loads more. It really is the closest you can get to Formula One, and thanks to F1 experiences you can return to the track this year and motormouth listeners can save five percent on your next f1 experiences package by using the code motormouth when booking online at f1experiences.com you can't say the motormouth podcast doesn't cover all all elements of uh, <laughs> of motorsport including hay fever and you're absolutely right the moment you put your hands in your eyes which feels amazing at the time when you're scratching around it's like yes this is heaven the moment you take your hands away, yes. it's the worst thing on the planet. Exactly. I'm, I'm totally, yeah. I'm totally with you. Also, as an aside, Nelson, spoke to Adam Carroll about this. A1GP, brilliant championship, needs to be brought back. I've got amazing plans for it. I'm thinking sustainable racing, men and women racing against each other. Bring it all back. Team Brazil, team... You, it, it's going to happen. So um, just putting it out there, when you get bored of racing, let's let's, sure. let's get together and bring it back. Okay, I'm just going to leave that there. We'll, we'll park that one there. It's funny. I just brought my, I wasn't, um, obviously my, my father lives in Brasilia still and I'm living in Sao Paulo and I'm, I'm <clears throat> I, I have literally crap and Rebecca can, can, can confirm that with you guys because she's still working with me, um, <laughs> all around the world. Obviously I've lived in, you know, went from Europe, went from Brazil to Europe, to America, back to Europe, back to Brazil. So I have storages everywhere. I'm starting now to bring all the pile of, Crap of trophies, helmets, <clears throat> cars over here to Sao Paulo because I have a couple of businesses over here. And I'm <clears throat> instead of having a house, which I cannot even step on the floor because there's stuff everywhere, I decided, well, I'm going to put stuff in my restaurant because it's my restaurant and you know I'm going to use it to put some of my helmets, my trophies. Oh, I have a go kart track. Well, I might as well make a little mini museum and put some of my stuff. And one of the cars, one of the last things I picked up from from my from my move, um, 
was a one a skill one eight amalgam uh, GP GP uh, A one GP car uh, that I had back in the day, um, and such a beautiful car. Oh, I was such a, a good championship. Uh, we had so much fun. I, I unfortunately I didn't finish the championship because I wanted to focus on GP two, and um, but but yeah, I mean, oh, I had a lot of fun, and I was also the first winner of the two first races in Brent's Hatch, with which were against. You know, not the least, but Adam Carroll, Will Power, uh, Robbie Kerr. Um, I mean, you name it, the, the guys that were racing there that are still racing nowadays. It's coming back. Tim's going to make sure of that. I'm going to bring it back. <laughs> I've, I've already reached out to, uh, to Mark Gallagher. I'm like, listen, we need to make this happen. I've got, I've got a whole business plan laid out for it. You'll be, you'll be, you'll be hearing from me by Rebecca. <laughs> um, one thing I wanted to cover before we come on to the quiz, and we asked this of a lot of people, um, is, is who is the best you've ever raced against? Who's the best you've ever shared a track with? Um, uh, for sure, Fernando. Fernando, he was... Uh... A tough guy to beat. I think I was in a very tough spot. He was in a, he had just won a world championship. He was, he had fire inside his pants. He wanted to, you know, destroy everything you could see in front of him. And uh, he was in, in, in his days, you know, I mean, nowadays, you know, he's one of the oldest guys in the paddock and he's still making Ocon. You know, I mean, in the beginning, I was pretty surprised with Ocon. And I said, well, Ocon, Ocon obviously is a good driver. And probably Fernando doesn't have that fire that he used to have, obviously, 15 years ago or how many years ago. And uh, but I don't know. I don't know what happened. I mean, I haven't followed it that close. To, I'm, I'm seeing the results in a couple of laps. But, you know, Fernando still seems to be, you yeah. know, the guy to beat uh, against even the young guys. You yeah, know, absolutely. You, you obviously made it to Formula One, which must have been an absolute elation for you when that dream came true. And it's obviously been well documented. But do you miss it? Well, not really, because, well, you miss things that you enjoyed or you miss some, I mean, uh, everybody dreams of being an F1. And, you know, I, I unfortunately, in the, let's say, three years that I was there, um, I didn't really, I mean, the first year was fun because I was a test driver, I had to go to all the races, didn't have to do anything, met <laughs> a lot of girls, um, had a lot of, a lot of fun. I, I had just started to drink at those days. You know, I, I took it took me a, it took me a while to start drinking. You know, when I first moved to England, I, I wasn't drinking yet, and uh, um, so you know, I think in that year, two thousand six to two thousand seven, that's when I started to found out what vodka Red Bull was back in the day, and because um, <laughs> uh, I, I didn't enjoy, I didn't enjoy wine, I didn't enjoy champagne, I just didn't like the taste of it. And then vodka Red Bull, oh, this is interesting, and then. <laughs> You know how much it made you go through the through the night. It was pretty pretty awesome. So, um, so I had a lot of fun that year. Um, must say that it was pretty spectacular year. <laughs> Obviously, I would have preferred to be racing, but I I just had to hang around and just show my face. So you know. Um, um, but then, yeah. The, obviously, the two seasons were tough because no. You know, I, I wasn't in the best environment, you know, um, F1 wasn't in a, in, a, in a weird time. It wasn't like nowadays, which, in my opinion, F1 is in a much better moment that they are, that they were in those days. It was Netflix was all there. Mm. I think Netflix made a big difference for them. But it's just the, the commercial package that they're having, you know, all those drivers that they're there nowadays, they're real stars. I feel that in my days, uh, Bernie had it so, so secured and so 
uh, kept away from the public, you know, that, that, you know, F1 was, wow, was something, something so far away, but at the same time, nobody really knew, you know, you know it was just what, what you would see in, in, in TV and that was it, you know, I think you have so much more content at the moment that it makes at the same time that it, it, it unveils a lot of the mysteries that what it was, but at the same time, it creates much more interest for the people because they know the characters, you know, they, they know what the drivers are, where they live, what they, what they like. And so it may, it creates much more interest basically. So, um, in my days, you didn't have any of that. And, and, and so going back to your question, I think it wasn't, it wasn't really fun because I was getting beat by Fernando, obviously, it's not that, you know, it's not, it's not easy to beat him, but you know, me as a driver had beaten all my teammates and won everything till I get there. And plus the environment was tough. You know, I mean, I, I didn't have what nowadays drivers doing the right thing, which was a, a cushion, um, a cushion, um, lawyer, uh, lawyer, or let's say manager at the time, you know, I, uh, nowadays, the right thing to do, and what I recommend to any driver is, you need a political, uh, political uh, manager, which you'll get the Jean Todd, the Nicholas Todd, all that kind of crap, uh, which they're completely political, and then involved in the politics of, of the of the sport. I mean, and then you have those guys, which are, for example, the cousin of Carlos Sainz, or you know, or in Max's case. He doesn't need to. He doesn't need to manage it. He has. Uh, uh, I forgot the name of his manager, but guys that they can trust for life. You know. Yeah. So it's two different things. You need maybe a guy that is going to know what's going to happen in the paddock and do the right moves. And because he's political, politically co- um, connected, he'll put you in the right place. But then also you need between you and that guy, you need the guy that is only looking at what's good for you. Because these guys, they'll, they'll sign as many drivers as they can what they're looking for is money, you know, these political guys. So, um, so that's, that's the issue which we faced. We, I think my father at the time thought that he could trust Flavio and thought that he could, Oh, he's Nelson's in good hands and that's it. Here's Nelson, take care of him and blah, blah, blah. That was it. But we didn't think in the fact that, you know, Flavio had as many drivers as he could have, you know, he's always going to look on his best interest, not on the driver's best interest. And that was our mistake, you know, it was so, so going back, you know, I know you, where you guys are going. I just want to make the whole picture, you know, it was a tough time because it was very competitive. I had a lot of pressure off of me and I didn't have anybody really looking at what was good for me, you know, uh, uh, for my health, for my, my, my mental health. Um, you know, I didn't have that, that kind of person really looking out for me in, in those ways. Yeah, it's it's you're absolutely right. And it, it's funny, actually, a weird connection that I have to you that you obviously won't be aware of is that at that time when you were with Renault, that was quite early on in my Formula One career. I, I've worked in driver management on the commercial side of things for many years. And that was one of my first um, um, big exposures to Formula One. And I was managing the ING Bank sponsorship of the Renault F1 team where I was wearing those horrible bright orange trousers and the white polo shirt looking like a clown in the paddock and um, and I'm pretty sure at one point I even gave you a ride on the back of a scooter for some reason to some sort of hospitality event or something or other so it's it's funny to be talking to you now in this capacity and I think everybody knows the dramas that unfolded in Singapore um, we're not going to go into it because I think you know you've said your piece on that we don't need to say anymore it's been covered a million times and as you say it was it was a difficult period of your career 
I don't think we need to brush um, uh, 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 brush through that. Well, I rather I do think we need to brush through that and, and brush over it. So we're going to ignore that part of your career completely and come to a much more important piece, which is the Motormouth podcast. Over to you, the Motormouth quiz, rather. Harry Benjamin, over to you, my friend. It is Nelson TK Jr. Welcome to uh, the middle part of the show, uh, which is the Motor Mouth Quiz. It's the hardest quiz in motorsport. We have a very long leaderboard of about, well, everybody who's ever taken part in the podcast, which is reaching 80 plus now. So it's a long old leaderboard. There are 14 points up for grabs. I have, uh, how many questions? We have four questions and a bonus question uh, for you but they're all about you and your career. So you should be able to hopefully uh, answer them. You're going to hear a couple of clips as well. It's essentially all you have to do is have a listen and then provide a little bit of context for us. And uh, if I'm feeling generous, I'll just give you all the points. Are you ready for your first question? I hope so. Okay. (laughs) All right. Well, the first question is actually a short clip. Have a listen to this. Here we go. Congratulations, guys. Can't believe we did it. (laughs) I knew. I felt this weekend was ours. I knew it. Thank you so much, everybody. Thank you. Long Beach. Yes. Oh, I don't know. I don't have to ask you. You Got Long Beach. What was the year and what happened? Uh, It was our first uh, first Formula E win. Uh, I think uh, I I was fourteen, fifteen, which I was already fifteen, I would say. But it was the first season of Formula E, obviously. Long Beach, and I, I know exactly uh, what I was feeling over there. I remember like it was yesterday. <laughs> Amazing. Well, you've gotten off to a brilliant start. That's uh, three points in the bag straight away. We're going to come on to a bit of Formula E stuff just in a moment. Uh, second question, though, for you. Um, can you name, you obviously uh, won the championship for what was uh, Team China Racing, Next TV. Can you name all the incarnations of that team and what they were called right up from the very start of Formula E to what they're called now. And I'll give you a hint. There are four different names I'm looking for. Wait, wait sorry, I didn't pick up your question. The incarnations? So, so the, basically the different names of what was initially China racing up till modern day. So what what had they what had they been called throughout the years? I'm looking oh. for four different team names. Tough. Okay, so well... China Racing. Yeah, you can have that one. Uh, <laughs> uh, Next TV. Yes. Uh, Neo. And yes. Uh, uh, and so the current the current form of it today, which is Neo, but there's a little something extra as well. Neo three 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 or Neo. Yeah, got it. it. Got it. it in one. Yeah. Got it in one. Well, well done. You're actually. We've uh, talked to a couple of uh, drivers who've been through that team and uh, the current manager, Christian Silk, and not even they are able to do that. So, <laughs> so well done. You're onto a blinder so far. Three, uh, six out of uh, six points available so far. Okay, uh, we've got another clip for you to listen to now. Have a listen to this. Here we go. I, I don't know what to say. <laughs> I mean. We tried so hard. Oh London. Last race. Championship race. Easy. He's got it. That was easy, wasn't it? Another three points on the board. Easy. <laughs> we will talk about that, I promise you. Um, one more question before your bonus point. How many podiums, uh, including wins, did you get in the first season of Formula E? How many? Uh, five podiums. Correct. First season, yeah. Well done. And for one extra bonus point, 
This is looking good, Nelson. You could go to the very top of the leaderboard here. Can you name the teams that your dad won his F1 World Championships with? Well, Brabham and Williams. Yeah, Boom. correct. He's got it all in there <laughs> for one bonus point. Nelson Pico Jr. Um, I don't think it was too easy, but maybe either way. It was too on. easy. Come on. <laughs> You've I got... thought you were going to say how many podiums you had in your British F3 first oh, God, season no. or something like that. Oh, God, no. That would have Can been hard work for, but on both our <laughs> sides, I think. But you've done amazingly there, and you've gone to the very top of the leaderboard. So you are our new leader. You have displaced Lee McKenzie, Alexander Sims, Dil Baggill, Connor Daly. Uh, you're all way ahead of them. We've got the likes of... Um, well, who else have we got on here? We've got Sebastian Buemi. He's only down in 20th position with 11 points. So you've absolutely smashed it there, Be- Beat him again. Uh, well done. You beat him again. Um, and actually, that's, that seems like a good segue to talking about your time in Formula E. Um, obviously, I imagine there's, there's, there's a mix of memories. Obviously, some very, very good memories here in Formula E. How, taking it back to the start of Formula E especially, what did you think of it going... In. How did you? What was the first thing you heard about it, and what that made you go? Oh, okay, that could be interesting. Well, um, like we were talking about, uh, we we're talking about those the whole manager bullshit politic things, you know. And um, obviously, I had learned a hard lesson, and uh, uh, so I, I promised myself, I'm, I'm, I'm going to work with someone that I trust. Maybe it's someone that is not politi- politically correct. Uh, politically connected well but I don't care I mean I need to be with someone I trust and um, Steve Hewitt at the time and when I went to the States um, he he was working for Alpine Stars you know he was the driver's rep for Alpine Stars and we got on really well together and this and that and I felt that he wanted to do something else he wanted to you know get out of Alpine Stars and do something fun something more challenging I said you're going to be my manager next year. And he was like, bullshit, whatever. I'm never going to be your manager and this and that, whatever. And, you know, he wasn't, he, he was living in California. He was going to all the NASCAR races. I was seeing him every weekend. I was, you're going to be my manager. You're going to be my manager. End of the season. Nelson, are you sure you want to do that? Yeah, I'm sure I want to do it. Well, he became a manager <laughs> and it was really fun. Um, we had a great time together. So anyway, the reason I'm coming into this was because I was doing at the time, uh, rally cross, you know, and he was helping me out. We're trying to find sponsors and helping out with the deals. And then Steve said, Hey Nelson, there's this electric series starting up, you know, uh, formula E it was Alejandro and this and that. I said, well, I know Alejandro pretty well and this and that, um, you know, from, from the GP two days, he had a, he had a GP two team together with mine. And, uh, you know, I, yeah, I mean, I'll give, I'll give Alejandro a call. So I gave Alejandro a call, didn't pick up. Um, I said, well, Steve, I cannot speak with Alejandro. He doesn't reply to my messages or anything like that. And he says, well, let me try to get a few calls. So I remember Steve got a call with Alan Prost, which was the, the, the EDAMS team at the time. Uh, we spoke to him and I said, Nelson, well, I, really want, I would really want to make a team with you and Nico. I said, well, that sounds uh, interesting. Come to England. So I went to England, went to Invent, we talked. Yeah, yeah. And then a couple of weeks, I don't know, a couple of days later, ah, Nelson, we're struggling. Obviously, it's going to be Renault and the manufacturer. And I, and so I said, look, I understand. I know that it's very corporate, these kind of things. You know, I said, don't worry about it. It's fine. And then Steve kept, you know, looking for something else. Then we, we end up at speaking to Venturi. 
And um, so Venturi said, yeah, come to Monaco. We would like to talk. We'd love to talk to you. So I went to Monaco, had a meeting, was great. And then, no, amazing. Let's do it. Let's do it. Let's do it. And all of a sudden they, they disappeared. I was like, what the fuck? Well, why, why are these people like this? You know, I mean, they tell us all to fly all the way to Monaco and then they disappear. And then, um, and then Steve called me a couple of days later. said, ah, Nelson, I think I know what's going on. Obviously, you know, uh, uh, um, Alejandro, you know, probably is, is very close friends with Flavio. Um, you know, there's Lucas is involved, which is not a big fan of yours either. And this and that, I'm sure we're getting politically cock blocked, let's say, you know, and I was like, oh, fuck, whatever. You know, I said, well, whatever this electric series, you know, we don't know what it's going to be about and this and that. Anyway, two weeks later and then testing starts, you know, I kind of followed from the States. I look at the, you know, I, I look at the tests going on and, you know, Steve actually goes there uh, to Donington and Steve calls me from there. And Nelson, uh, why well, I have I have this opportunity with Adrian Campos and uh, China Racing. I said, what the fuck is China Racing? Ah, it's it's a team from from a Chinese guy, whatever. This this. I said, look, Steve, why we're going to go all the way to England, spend a week and spend money and this and that, and and you know, and then all of a sudden, you know, whoever is cock blocking us is going to. Well, I, I spoke to Asian about that, and he said that you know it's a bit different. You know, a lot of these big teams, they were having a lot of financial help from Formula E to convince them to come to the series. So in a way, Formula E had a bit of a say on who to pick as a driver. And I was like, well, fair enough. You know, and China Racing doesn't have anything. You know, China Racing was sort of a, a spot that was left, you know, left open, and 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 Alejandro kind of with all his connections around the world convince a Chinese guy to, you know, come and run it. I said, fine. Okay. Let's, you know, let's not make sure we're going to get cock blocked, but yeah, let's do it then. So I fly into England for the last two days of testing before going to Hong Kong. And, um, so I tested the team was extremely disorganized. They had no idea what was going on. Energy saving was something that was not even going through our minds. We're, we're, instead of thinking about energy saving, we're, we're, we're tweaking about bars and front wing and springs and all that kind of crap, which doesn't make a difference when you're in the, I mean, it does, but it, uh, that's not the main, that's not the most important thing. But anyway, we were there, testing finished, and everything was sort of, okay, Nelson, we would like to have, we're going to have you. And, and I think the other driver was, I don't know if it was Hoping Tongue, or Charles Pick, the first one. I think, one. They, I think was, it was, was sort of revolving door, wasn't there at that point? Yeah, was I think it was Garcia as well. He tested, yes, he did test, okay. but not with me. He tested before I arrived. Okay, but anyway, I think it was Hopin, the first the driver. So, um, so I agent went. Look, Nelson, um, fine. I think we're gonna we're gonna keep you to to start the season with, and uh, everything seems okay. I said, well, okay, fine. We're not going to be able to pay you much, but you know, um, it is what it is. Let, let's let's try to make a good job. There's a lot of prize money in, F, in F Formula E, so let's try to you know maybe I can you can use this prize money as, as your salary. I said, oh, okay, that sounds that sounds good. I don't know. A couple of hours in that same day, Lucas Degrassi he shows up with a Swiss driver, which had I don't know a check of three million euros in his pocket. Said. Agent, I have this driver for you and uh, replace Nelson and uh, you, you need the money and this and that. So and I, I don't know what was going on in the background. So 
couple of hours later, agent calls me and said, Nelson, we have an issue over here. I said, what is it? Well, as you know, uh, this team obviously doesn't have sponsor. I mean, it's a private guy from China that is putting the money to do this. You know, we're kind of on a tight budget. I said, yeah, okay. So the issue is that, you know, Lucas um, came over here and he found a driver that has quite a lot of money. I said, oh, great. I knew that was going to happen. And um, he said, but me, Agent Campos, I'm a racer. I do want to you know, as long as it's, as much as it's going to be difficult for us, I, I do think, you know, we need a good driver over here to be able to win. And um, I was like, yeah, okay, so let's sign me. He said, well, but unfortunately, the Chinese guy knows that there's this check of two, three million euros over here, and he doesn't want to let go of it. So the only thing I can tell him to try to convince him is say, look, I mean, Nelson is a better driver. He has a bit of sponsorship, but we need to keep it. We need to try to keep him. I said, look, agent, championship starts in in a month. You know, the cars are packing up tomorrow to go. I mean, how the hell you want me to find sponsorship now? I mean, it's, you know, if I knew this, I wouldn't even have to come over here, you know? And then luckily I had Steve with me and um and Steve and and and, and when 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 I was in NASCAR, you know, Steve was still working for Alpine Stars and NASCAR, um, Steve was, you know, obviously doing my race suits at Alpine Stars and stuff like that. He had worked a lot with Qualcomm, that big company, technology company from California. And Qualcomm was one of the sponsors of Formula E in the beginning. And Steve was, Nelson, who do you know from Qualcomm? I said, well, I know a couple of people over there. I said, well, let's, they're, they're over here. Let's go speak to them. It's like, well, well I, don't, I don't know, Steve. I mean, so I go through my contacts and I try to find the person from Qualcomm. I, I speak to the person. Hey, who's the person in charge for Qualcomm doing this Formula E project? Oh, this is the person, Cynthia. Okay, so I call Cynthia. Cynthia, are you in Dunnington? Yeah, yeah, I'm in Dunnington. Can I meet you? Where are you? Uh, so I meet, I meet the person at the racetrack. I said, look, I'm Nelson. I've worked with you. I've, I've been sponsored by you guys in Formula 3 in Brazil, in, in British F3, won the championship with you guys there. Uh, I've, um, I've been in NASCAR races with you guys. Oh, really? And this, the company is so big that she didn't really know it. But, you know, I was showing her pictures. I said, look, I really, you know, I, I would love to be part of the series, you know, but I need to bring a sponsor. Uh, wouldn't you guys be interested in being involved with me? And she was like, well, you know, we're already sponsoring the series and this and that. Um, we might be able to, we might be able to do something, but it's, it, it's going to be from, um, it's going to be from January onwards. I was like, and the season started in August, September, something like that, you know? I was like, what, can we get a contract? He said, yeah. And these big companies, they're so slow to do everything. I mean, to get a contract of a company like Qualcomm, it took me forever. Anyway, but she had agreed. She had verbally and on an email, she had sort of said, yeah, okay, we can, we can, uh, we can agree for, I don't remember the amount, X amount, which was probably half of what Adrian had asked us for. And uh, I went to Steve. I said, look, Steve, <clears throat> Um, what shall we do? I mean, we've kind of gone an okay for half of the sponsor. He said, you know what, Nelson, let's do it. I mean, if the, if the, if, you know, we don't know what's going to happen over here. If the freaking thing is, is a fiasco, we just leave. I mean, you know, let's give it a try. Let's, you know, I said, but we don't have the money. So I know we don't have the money, but let's, let's just say we have it and we try to push it onward onwards. And, you know, we, let's give it a try. I said, okay, fine. So I said, hey, okay, Agent Campos, I have what you needed for, but I cannot pay you 
all now. We're, we're going to have to wait for the sponsor money for it to come during the races. And uh, he said, okay, I, I, I think I can convince the guys from China with, with, with this. So we go to the first race in Hong Kong. Um, and um, I said, look, I cannot, the money is not going to come for the first. It's going to come more for the second race onwards. And I'm, I was planning a race. Okay, let's, it's going to give me a chance to find more sponsorship plus see if it's worth really spending the money on, on this whole crazy idea of electric racing. So we go to Hong Kong, disaster first weekend. I mean, it was horrible. The guys had no idea what they were doing. The, the teams that were Audis, the Renaults, the, 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 you know, the, at the time they had to, the, the Virgin cars with, with Sam Birds. I mean, these, these teams were miles ahead of us. Oh, look, Steve, these guys have no idea what they're doing. We're going to, you know, it's going to be a waste of time over here, what we're doing. And he was like, well, let's, let's, let's give it a try. You know, I think we don't, I don't, I don't think we need the payment until, until the second race. I said, well, how are we going to get this payment? Well, let's, let's try to push it on. Anyway, second race, Malaysia. Um, I'm, they're putting pressure on us to, to bring the sponsor money ready. And I'm like, oh, it's going to come right after the race. It's going to come right after the race. Let's do this race and I'll give you the money afterwards. So, managed to do the race i was running third until i was taken out by truly and i was like whoa we're running third this race already before getting taken out you know steve i mean i think you know even though they're completely lost all the cars are the same so essentially you know i need to i need to you know if the cars are the same and you cannot touch anything you know you need to do energy management well done you know as long as i have someone to kind of teach me how to do a bit of energy management i let i think i can do it you know Okay, let's 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 keep trying. Let's go to the third race, which is, which was uh, Punta or Buenos Aires, something like that. But by then, we were having a lot of pressure from China Racing to bring in the sponsor money. You know, I, they were calling in every day, emails. If you don't bring the money, we're gonna stick. We're gonna put a different driver, and we're like, no, no, we're gonna find out. We're gonna. So I, at that time, I'm pushing Qualcomm. Steve is pushing Qualcomm to get the money, and they look, guys, it's gonna come in. It's gonna come in January. What we promised you, not not before that. So I was like, fuck. We're, we're now we're talking about we're in November sort of period of the time, and I still had three months for the money to come. So I go to the bank and I get a loan, and uh, knowing that this money was gonna come, so I get a loan, and we send we 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 send a bit of money to the team. I said, look. This is what we got for the moment and from the sponsor. And we'll give you a little bit more after, after, uh, Buenos, after Punta. And they were like, okay, so uh, you do Punta. And after Punta, you really need to bring the money. Punta, we finished second place. The whole team went crazy. Well, well done. Well, then I said, well, that's going to be great. It's going to buy me a bit of time. And, uh, well, the week after Punta, Nelson, where's the money? Where's the money? We go to the bank, get another bit of loan, send the money. And then after we had Buenos Aires, so I managed to stay into Buenos Aires and uh, got another podium, finished third over there, if I'm not mistaken. And the team went crazy. Oh, that's great. This and that. Um, so it bought, it bought me a bit of time. And then same thing, went to Miami to race in Miami, got a lot of pressure. I was, we were supposed to win that race, but um, we had a problem in the pit stop with the car. I was going to win that race easily. And um, I had a problem in the pit stop, ended up, ended up ending up finishing fifth. But at that time I was already 
top five in the championship, if I'm not mistaken. And um, and the Chinese guy, he was sort of he wanted, he was putting pressure for me to bring the money of the sponsors, but he was kind of at that point I had a little bit more of um, I don't know how to say it in English, but I I had a bit more of uh, morale in the team to be able to say hold on and this and that. Anyway, I'm sorry I'm making this this thing so long, but uh, no, we not, went to Long Beach. Apologize. <laughs> we went to Long Beach, and. Uh, you know, uh, we were having pressure from the team to bring the rest of the money. And uh, obviously, we got the first win in Long Beach. And then the, and the Chinese guy called me into a, after the race, called me and said, oh, fuck, this is going to be my last race. That, that's it, you know. And um, because we were owing at that point so much money, because it was not only the money that we were, because I don't know if, like I said in the beginning, Qualcomm had agreed to only half of, what I was supposed to bring to the, to the, to the team. So we were owing kind of quite a lot of money and I was already calculating, okay, I need to win X amount of races to be able to pay this bill. I said, Oh my God, what am I, what's going to happen? So this Chinese guy calls me into a, to a dinner with Steve. And I was like, okay, well, Steve is going to be our last race. Say bye to everybody. And then he said, Oh, well, you're doing really well. You know, we need sponsorship. I said, I know, I know I'm trying, but it's not easy. And this, and I said, let's do this. And he got, he had the contract in front of him and he said, look, here's the contract. And I needed a, he turned the paper. I said, Oh fuck. What now? I said, he said, look, forget what you owe me. Stay until the end of the championship, try to win it. And, uh, and I'll, whatever you make in bonuses of, of all of these prize money, you can keep it. Whoa. I was like, Oh my God. I was like, thank God. Thank you so much. And I was all, so, so that was it. After Long Beach, you know, I finally was racing without any pressure, and uh, we ended up winning the championship. And it was, you know, that that's the story of the of season one, basically. Oh, I, I've I've never heard that story. I don't know whether you've spoken about that before. If you have, I've just missed it. But that, that is such a cool story, and what a what a bloke to to do that with it. I mean, what a great way for someone to react to just rip up the contract and go, look, I can see your value. Forget it and keep keep the money, take the bonus money. Yeah. Was. No, it was it, it was it was hard times. Um, it was. I need to thank Steve a lot for that because uh, Steve really did a. I mean, if it wasn't for him, it would have been much harder for me. Um, but yeah, thanks to Qualcomm, thanks to Steve and Rebecca. I mean, all of these people that were helping me so much, you know, in, in that tough year. Um, yeah, and because of because of that, you know, and I'm gonna continue a little bit into season two and three, just but much in a much shorter version. Obviously, when the season ended, I had an opportunity to go to any of the teams. I could have could have picked to go to Virgin, to go to Venturi, to go to anywhere I wanted, and offer and with good salaries. And um, um, because I don't know, I come from a small city, Brasilia, which. It's a little bit different. I, I tend to say the big cities like New York, LA, Miami, Paris, you have much more shallow friendships and everything is money and you have a bit of a fake sort of world, you know? And uh, I think I've learned how to appreciate a little bit friendship and opportunities. So I, I told like I told Next TV, well, became Next TV in season two, but China Race, and I said, look. I'm not going to leave for any of these teams. Don't be worried about that. I, the only thing I'm going to ask you is to equal what they want to pay me. So if I'm going to get X amount of 
uh, salary in that team. Just just equal it to me, and we're good. We'll continue together, and we'll we'll keep this journey that it has started so beautifully and and so crazy. But we made it, and so let's let's stick together. And we and and the group of people that Adrian Campos put together was was a really good group of guys. You know, it was really we had a lot of fun together, and it was really fun. The problem was that, and I that was my fault and Steve's fault. We didn't do our, I mean, we knew it, but we didn't know how bad it was going to be. Basically the, 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 the regulation of formula E was first season, all the cars are going to be the same, but you can start developing your car for season two uh, straight away. So the teams like Audi, Renault, all these big manufacturers, when the race one started in Hong Kong, they were already developing their powertrain for season two. Next TV, we were trying to put the pennies together to be able to fly to the races, be able to bring an engineer to the races because we, they had no money, not even to pay for travel. You know, that was the situation we were. So thinking about developing of season two powertrain, forget about, I mean, we didn't even know we were going to take part in season two, you know? So, um, Obviously, when the season ended, you know, the Chinese bloke had got uh, Martin Leach from 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 Next TV to buy part of the team and, and to bring to come in some money. But I had no idea we were a year behind everybody else in this whole development of the powertrain. Well, honestly, it's much easier to look back and and, you know, admit to mistakes that you have done. Yeah, but uh, it was so frustrating what I did for the next, then for the next two seasons, season three, two and three, that I really, it would have probably would have changed my, it did change my career staying at China racing, but I think it would have changed as well. If I would have um, gone to a team like Virgin, for example, you know, and been, been able to fight for wins and championships and stuff like that. Um, so it got me in a, in, you know, in a very frustrating streak of two years, uh, until I managed to go to, to switch teams to Jaguar, which got a bit better, but still it was a very a young team, which, you know, uh, um, they still needed a, a lot of development still when I got there. But anyway, that was, that's the beginning of Formula E for me. Wow. Amazing Ooh. stuff. And, and we, and we should also obviously say, you know, you mentioned Adrian Campos there a lot, um, yes. you know, thought thoughts to him, um, you know, who, who recently left us. So uh, amazing to hear all that, that, um, that detail. So uh, thank you so much for the honesty and, and openness there. It's brilliant stuff. Um, th- there's, we, we are running out of time. There's so much more we wanted to talk to you about, including your US exploits, um, truck racing, NASCAR, um, and your wins there, your, your, your debut NASCAR, victory at Road America, becoming the first Brazilian to win a NASCAR National Touring Series event. There's so much more we need to talk to you about. So there's, as with one or two of our other guests, there's going to have to be a Nelson Piquet Jr. Part 2. Um, but um, we'll, we'll whiz forward in the interest of time, Harry, if this is all right with you, just um, jumping into our, our final three, which we ask all of our guests. Um, the same questions, they throw up different answers. Um, I'll kick off. Nelson, what's got you excited at this very moment uh well obviously we're not in glory days of back in a1gp days or mm-hmm. formerly anything like that but um, um i well I'm, I'm currently racing brazilian touring cars and doing a couple of races imsa races in in, in the states um 
but yeah, at the moment, honestly, I'm in a, in a, in a phase which I'm, I'm building a lot of a couple of companies in Brazil to be able to not depend on racing anymore. You know, obviously we're in that transition, which, you know, in a couple of years, I'm not going to be racing anymore, but I don't want to go through that period, which all these drivers, a lot of drivers go, which all of a sudden they don't have a ride. And all of a sudden they're doing appearances for two, three, five grand, 10 grand, whatever to survive. And that's not really what I would like to uh, go through. So uh, I'm trying to build as much as I can on the side for the racing to be hundred percent pleasure and uh, just, you know, fun and not having to deal with payment contracts and negotiations. No, I just want to be racing for fun, you know, and I have all my businesses on the side taking care of all the bills that I have basically. Yeah, sounds uh, sounds very sensible. Um, but if not doing what you're doing, which was being a racing driver, what would you have done? I have no clue. Um, <laughs> because, yeah, I mean, my father, as much as he always helped us a lot to achieve our, our, our dreams, he also, in a way, never really obliged or pushed us uh, and when I say us, it's because I see between all the brothers to really do something meaningful or, or want to do something. My father, eh, being a father and wanting to help the kids and, you know, not, I mean, he, he's been tough for a lot of things, but in other ways, he's not tough enough, you know, and that caused to, you know, a lot of my brothers and sisters not to, not to be driven in doing much, you know, and, and. Uh, so I, I would never want to be in that position. I'm, I'm, I'm so uh, happy that I, that I love racing, that I, I have this fire inside me to work and I have a beverage company, I have restaurants, I have go-kart tracks. I have, I mean, invested in different things. Um, uh, but it's all things that I love to do and I work a lot, really a lot. And, and, but it's not something, I don't know. I, I haven't picked that up from my dad and I see a lot, a lot of my brothers and sisters, which, you know, they, they haven't found their passion. They don't do much and they kind of live a little bit. Some of them live on my father still. So um, I think that, you know, uh, I'm just, yeah, I'm just glad that, you know, I've, uh, what's your question again? Sorry. <laughs> if you weren't a racing a, driver, what would you be doing? Oh yeah. So I don't know. I, I, I think I, I love, I, I love, I love working in, in, in the business. I, I don't know, commercial side of things. I'm, I'm very interested buying, selling, marketing department. Um, uh, I don't know. I'm, I'm obviously because my whole life I've been chasing sponsors and doing interviews and selling myself and, you know, that, that I've kind of become good and, and I like doing that, you know? Um, so I think, you know, something in the lines of selling merchandise, marketing, I don't know. I, I, I still think that I, I would be a really good manager nowadays because I've seen obviously everything that I've went through that I know exactly what a driver needs to be hundred percent well-focused in, in the race car. Good, yeah, good stuff. Well, there, there's certainly a spot on the Motormouth board for uh, Nelson Piquet Jr. So I'm just going <laughs> to just chuck that out there, see where it lands. Um, final question for you before we let you get on with your day. Nelson, what are you scared of? Uh, what am I scared of? Uh, I don't know. I mean, um, not much. I mean, obviously, I, I, I think I don't know, but I, I think 
quitting racing. You know, it's something that's, that I would never want to do. You know, I know we're all getting old together. You know, we're all getting older. Um, but you know, uh, I don't think about it, but at the same time, when I think about it, one day I'm going to have to start racing. It's, uh, it's not scary, but it's like, I wouldn't want to stop racing, you know? Um, at the same time, there's drivers doing stock car Brazil that are 50 still like Rubens. So I, yeah. it's, it's, it's something good to look at. Oh, I still have 15 years of racing ahead of me. Great. You know? Um, but yeah, I mean, I don't know. I'm scared of getting hurt and not being able to race. I, I don't know. I mean, there's, uh, honestly, I don't know what, what I'm scared of. Um, I think, uh, it's like, it's a whole new phase of uh, life, isn't it? That people might be scared of. It's a new chapter that is going to be turned eventually, but you just don't know when uh, that'll happen. But look, Nelson PK Jr., it's been an absolute pleasure. It really has been a privilege uh, to have you on the show with us to kickstart our, uh, our season eight of the podcast. Thank you so much for being so open and honest. The stories have been absolutely fascinating and your career has been absolutely incredible, the ups and the downs. Uh, and I, I'm, I'm sorry we couldn't cover all of it, but uh, hopefully, as Tim said, we will get a part to it at some point soon. But Nelson PK Jr., thank you so much for coming onto the Motormouth Podcast. Pleasure, and uh, I'll speak to you guys then uh, on part two. Take care. Thank you very much. Before you go, one final reminder to check out F1 Experiences, the official experience, hospitality and travel program of Formula One. F1 Experiences is the closest you can get to the sport. Official ticket packages, which include the best race tickets, first class hotels, travel and exclusive behind the scenes access across a Grand Prix weekend. F1 Experiences offer packages like no other. So to book your F1 Experiences package, head online to f1experiences.com And if you enter code MOTORMOUTH, you'll get 5% off too. Thank you so much for listening to the MOTORMOUTH podcast. Do make sure you give us a follow on our socials, Twitter at MOTORMOUTH underscore, Instagram at MOTORMOUTH underscore official, and Facebook, just search MOTORMOUTH. You can also download the MOTORMOUTH app where you can get exclusive video content from MNTV, create your own social profile to interact with other fans, and check up on all the latest happenings with whatever motorsport takes your fancy. We're also proud to be supporting the Brain Tumor Charity too, so make sure you check the links in the podcast description to find out how you can help cure brain tumours quicker. Don't forget to like, subscribe and review. And until next time, you've been listening to the Motormouth Podcast.